We are uh, continuing First Peter chapter two, and um, so last week, uh, last week, you know, we we talked about the idea not only what um, First Peter kind of is about, uh, you know, that Peter is talking to Christians that are going through some trials and through some struggles. Starts out chapter one, kind of laying a foundation of who Christ is, and what we saw in chapter two. Uh, Kind of having a backdrop that when people face struggles, they sometimes tend to compromise. And we can look at those compromises in, in whatever way. Either they compromise themselves to sin, um, in, in either to lessen the, uh, the strain of the struggle that they're going in, or they're pushed to compromise their faith and what they say and how bold they are. And so we see that that idea is, is there. And, and Peter just lays out and says, listen... You know, your faith, he uses the illustration of Jesus being the cornerstone, right? If your faith is laid on that foundation and that you build everything off of Jesus Christ, right, that, that your faith will stand firm no matter what that trial is, no matter what you come across. And that those, he gave the contrast, that those who do not place their faith in Christ, um, that they will actually stumble over this cornerstone, Jesus. And so that was, that was kind of where we left off. Uh, verse 8 says they stumble because they disobey the word, meaning those who stumble over Jesus. And really there's only two paths. You either lay your life on Jesus or you uh, have Jesus as an obstacle for the way that you want to live your life. And he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so we pick up in verse 9 um, with, with Peter saying, but, but you. And what we're going to see here um, and uh, we're going to cover verses 9 through 12, um, is that Peter is, is kind of like a coach, uh, kind of like a head coach that, that is kind of prepping the, the team for, for a big game. You know, and this is really for them as they go out and live their lives. Like every day is their game. Every day is like the situation that they're put in. And so he's going to say some foundational truths that he's been saying what are, what are true about all Christians, but he's going to then kind of like in, in a couple verses just summarize you know, who they are and what they've been through uh, so that they can be prepared to then take on some practical things, which we'll get, we'll get to a little bit later. So uh, as we kind of think about that, you know, if you guys are into sports, what, what, would, a coach, um, what would a coach tell his team or her team before they, they go to the big game? What are some things that you would, you would uh, if you were a coach, you would want to tell your, your players or if you were a player, what, what would the coach, what would inspire you and encourage you? Okay, okay. So you're champions, you got what it takes, you have the skills that, uh, to, to do what's necessary. Anything else? You're not going to back down. You're not going to back down. You, you, you fall down, you'll get back up. Okay, okay. You will encounter some problems. Someone, if, you know, if it's football, someone's going to hit you, right? If it's another, someone is going to score against you, right? So, so keep at it. Keep up. Anything else? We can win. We can win. We can win this thing. Okay. Yeah, and so Peter, you know, you kind of get the idea. He, he says all of these things, kind of like, you know, you are champions. I mean, you know, if, if a coach came out and said, like, you guys are nothing, right, right before the big game, right? You had a terrible practices this week, and I'm just lucky we're going to make this one out alive, right? 
you know, you've already set your team up, up for failure. And so Peter knows that, I mean, uh, when we face trials and we face, you know, the pushback from the culture that we're already can be set up for discouragement. And, and Peter just says, listen, like, you are champions and you've got what it takes. But this is how he says it in, uh, in, in, uh, verse nine. He says, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we kind of have four things that he says, you know, this is who you are, right? You know, if it was a coach, right, you know, we've put in a lot of practice, right? You've got heart, you've got training, you, we can outlast them. We can, you know, all of these things, it reminds them of these things so they can do well in the big game. And he says for, for those that are followers of Jesus, right, you know, the, the, those who do not put Jesus as their cornerstone, they're going to stumble, they're going to fall, but you... You are not that, right? And you've got something that, that, that distinguishes you from the rest. And the first thing he says is that you are a chosen race, right? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if you look up like what the definition of a race is, it's those who share a similar culture or history or background or language. It's something that has, you know, something in common. Right. Previously, it would be a race of Israelites. And through all through the Old Testament, you would have traced their lineage from the line of Abraham when he was given a promise to have a nation through his son and then Jacob giving the name Israel and then kind of we seeing that, that come into fruition through the lines and the sons of Jacob. Um, but these Jews had gone beyond like geographical bounds, right? And we'll see that in another, another term that he uses. And, and who he's speaking to is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, right? He says that they're dispersed all throughout the land. Um, and so now the scope of who this race is is not just to the Israelites. The scope has widened. And we see, you know, in Romans where they talk about uh, Paul, you know, recently went through that where Paul said that the Gentiles have now been grafted in um, to uh, the, the tree of, of, of the Israelites. And so we see that that race is now spread out to other people, to these people who Peter is talking to. In Galatians, Paul says in verse 328, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, and there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to promise. And so, two things about that is, one, you know, you all are a part of this race, but they're a race that God has chosen. And so... We go back and say, Abraham was chosen. God said, I choose you that I am going to, to uh, basically have my message of salvation and have my love be put upon, and you now are part of that chosen race. And so that's the first thing he, want, he, he wants them to know, is that you've been chosen, but now you are part of God's plan. And so we'll see that in a little bit as he talks about the third term. But secondly, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Last week we looked at you know, where, where Peter kind of draws um, some of the language that he talked about, and we talked about it last week because uh, he said that, that um, the believers are a holy priesthood, and he says now that they are a royal priesthood. And in verse uh, in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we looked at it last week, but I'll just kind of remind you guys. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, meaning 
when you go into the promised land and you obey what I say and keep, keep my covenant, um, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So really the next three things that Peter talks about, he draws upon that language. And one of them was the kingdom of priests. Peter kind of changes that and says, you are a royal priesthood. If you think about a lot of ancient societies, usually their hierarchy uh, had at the very top was their king. And then below their king was usually the priestly class. It was the king who kind of ruled the nation, ruled the, the, uh, the, the empire, or it was, and it was the priest who kind of oversaw their religion. And sometimes those two things went hand in hand. And so even, you know, even in today, we, in a secular society, we see parallels drawn. You know, we might have a president, but you know, the kingdom priest, the, the priestly class might be our, our scientists. But we have some sort of group you know, that people revere um, as the head, that kind of are the leader of, uh, of a nation. And, and Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. All believers are royal priests. Not only do they serve the king, who is Christ Jesus, but in, in Hebrews, Hebrews says that he is our high priest, and they serve the high priest. And it's not only that necessarily this hierarchy that they serve him, but we see language in other places in Scripture that, that we have the privilege to be under Christ, but we also get to reign and rule with Christ. And so that language is actually picked up in a couple other places um, in Scripture. John in Revelation uh, chapter 1 says, uh, he's talking, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So Jesus is ruler of all. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so he acknowledges right at the beginning of Revelation that God has made us a priest in his kingdom. Later on in chapter 5 of Revelation, he says, Praise Jesus, and you have made them made those who follow Jesus a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So it goes from Jesus, right, acknowledging him as ruler over all kings, and then furthering that description that the, the, these priests are going to rule in his kingdom under Jesus Christ. In Revelation 20, as we get to the millennium, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So it's interesting language that, you know, this wasn't only just what God had said when you come to the promised land, that you will be, you know, a, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, but that that is continuing further that in the future, Right, that all believers will reign and rule with Jesus Christ. So one of the things is okay. So I understand, you know, being a priest and ruling with Jesus and ruling under Him. What what is what does a priest do? What are the obligations of a priest? And so what does that what does that look like for like our role? And uh, where where does that part tie in? So what do what do priests do? What's their job? Mediators, okay? Please explain further. <laughs> they are 
Because yeah, I, I, I would totally agree with you, but yeah, for the rest of us, they're, what? They're, they're a go-between between someone who doesn't have a direct relationship between somebody who does. Okay, okay. So uh, a go-between, and so typically in the Old Testament, who would the go-between for a priest be? Like, who, who, would, he go, who would he be going in between? <laughs> the people in God. What's that? The people, the people The people in God. All right, so now if we are priests, is that same obligation hold true? Like, are we, are we go-betweens between someone and, and God? Okay, not not according to the priesthood believer. So, so let's take that. Let's take that because that that idea was true because um, man was sinful, right? And the priest was he sinful? Okay, he was sinful, but he was given a special job. That what could the priest do that no other other person could do? Sacrifice. What's that? Sacrifice. Okay, they, so they couldn't do the the sacrifice. Um, uh, I'm sorry, no man could do the sacrifice, only the priest could do the sacrifice. And so would you say, well, that, does, does, will that play into what fu- the future looks like? Do we have a sacrifice that we give? Ourselves. Right? What's that? Ourselves. Okay, we say ourselves. We see that here on earth. Uh, uh, in the future, if we're going to reign with him for a thousand years, and you know, uh, if, if we ha- kind of have that language... Um, the sacrifice, you know, he, what does Hebrew say about our need for a sacrifice? It's once for all, right, through Jesus Christ. So that, that really, uh, that part or that obligation for the priesthood is no longer there. But you're getting closer as far as, like, what else could the priest do that, that no man could do? Okay, so the, the, the priests, right, the, the high priest, really, the priests could, were the only ones who could... If we say the Levites in general were the only ones who could work in, in, in the temple or the tabernacle, the priests were the only ones who could go into the, the uh, holy place, and, right, and only the high priest could go into the, the holy of holies. And so, and Jesus was the one who is that high priest. But in essence, right, it's only the priests who are able to have direct um, connection with God without, you know, suffering consequences for it. So really the, the main thing that we see and and you know uh being that mediator will no longer be necessary in the future. Um it might be in, in the millennium but we'll we'll you know that's that's something separate. Um the priests were holy and set apart. That's something will set, certainly be holy and set apart for God's specific use. Um but the main thing is that we're able to now be in the presence of God. Right, and as priests, I think that's going to be our main function. That as that that um, as that role is that we have the ability to have direct access to God. And so when he says that you are a royal priesthood, right, that you are going to be with Christ. And so when we think about what heavens looks like, there's going to be some aspect of reigning together, but there'll be the aspect of not needing someone to go between us because we are. The go between, but really we're not going between, right? We get to just have direct access to God. It will be like Moses when he was able to speak to God face to face. And so that is just amazing right there, right? If you think, one, you are a chosen race. Like you've been chosen for a purpose that God has now selected you and that you are part of something bigger than maybe you thought of, you know. Uh, you know, what your purpose was in the world, that you are a chosen race to 
hold on to this heritage that you can look back in the Old Testament and find common ground with the Israelites. And so now you are a part of that, something bigger than yourself. You're a part of a royal priesthood that gives you direct access. It's like VIP pass straight to God. Right, And so this special privilege, the people that maybe you looked up to or the people that had the power in a society, like you are, you are that. You are the privilege in order to come to God himself. And so then you see, thirdly, a holy nation. All right? And so it's kind of interesting, again, when you look at like what is, the, what is the, uh, the definition of a nation, it's almost the same exact definition as a race, like a, people that share a certain common... Um, language or culture or history, uh, things like that. Uh, but typically, when you see a nation, you see like geographical boundaries that are set to it, which is not the case for, for them. But remember who Peter's talking to. Peter's talking to those, if you look back in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, to those who are dispersed through um, you know, the area of Asia Minor. And so... They are dispersed just like we are all dispersed as believers all throughout the nation. But if we are dispersed, but we still have a residency or we still have an allegiance to a particular nation, we are now kind of ambassadors of that nation. We might not have a geographical home here on this earth, but we do have a and it's kind of, you know, is there a space, a place where heaven is, you know. Uh, but our nation now is where? Is in heaven, right? Is in is in the Lord, and there will be a future, a new Jerusalem, a new a new uh, heaven and earth that that we will occupy um, space in. But we are now a part of a nation, right? So the same thing, similar with all those all those uh, um, you know all those cultural and historical and you know all, all those things that we tie together to. But now you are a holy nation, and, and that idea that if you are a part of a nation now, wherever you go. That is, you know, even if you're going to visit somewhere in Europe, right, you're still an American. Uh, and when you hear people speak English, you know, or that have sound like they're Americans, you somehow, like some light goes on. You're like, hey, where are you from? And then they say Canada, and you're like, oh, okay, you know. Um, but, <laughs> no, but, you know, they're like, I'm from Montana, and you're like, I'm from Georgia, right? And, you know, even though, like, here in the States you have less in common, but when you're visiting somewhere else, you, you see that allegiance to it, and you're part of that nation. And so the holy part, right, again, as, as similar to a priest, a, a holiness is that you're set apart, right? You have a purpose, right? And when you are... Uh, an American overseas that you, you know, you hopefully will act as a good ambassador of that no matter where you go, right? The Israelites were supposed to be a light to attract people in, you know, to their nation. They were set apart for certain purposes, but now um, in, the, in the church age, we are cast out to be that light to others. And he says, you are part of that. You can be an ambassador for that, um, you know, and so that's that's something that should also like you know encourage us, and inspire us. And the fourth thing he says, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that we can go through in this, uh, is that he says you are people for his own possession. Back in that verse, Exodus nineteen five, he says, "You are my treasured possession." Um, so when you have something that is a treasured possession, I don't know. I can't really think of, like, what are things that are my treasured possession? But say, pretend you had a treasured possession. So maybe something comes to mind. What, what would you do if you had a treasured possession? Like, how do you treat that treasured possession? What are things you do with something that is treasured in your eyes? Very carefully. You, know, you don't want a lot of people touching it or handle it, it might break or whatever. You know, you might defile it in some way. It's precious. 
Okay, so it's precious. So you, you handle it differently, okay? Uh, what else do you do with that? Thinking about that, that uh, maybe the, the uh, I don't know, the, the fragileness. What else, what, what would you do with that as well? Not only how you handle it, but how you what? What else would you do with it? Keep out of reach. Okay, what, what would we say that? What's that? Protect it. Yeah, we would secure it. Okay, and whether it is you know uh, fragile or not, you know, even if it was a brick of gold, but it was your treasure, it was your treasure, treasure, right? Um, that you would you know probably have it not on display, but you would have it somewhere that is secure. Okay, what else would you do with a treasure possession? You might show it off every once in a while. You might show it off every once in a while. Okay, you might, you might put it on display and uh, show it off every once in a while. Um, you know, if it's something that, like, is yours, you know, sometimes your treasure possession is your thing and, like, no one really cares, but, like, you, you kind of, like, have it in a box somewhere, you know, under like, yeah, under your bed or something like that. <laughs> your wife sometimes wants to get rid of it, but you're like, no, I know it's my treasure, you know, right? In my warped sense, it's treasured to me for some reason, right? You know, so you look at it fondly every once in a while, you polish it, you know, if it was polishable. Anyway, so you have all those things that you, you kind of, that, that come along with it, right? You check in on it, make sure like it's still there, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> so that's fine. But God says that about you, that you are people, uh, you're, you're his treasured possession, right? That you are special to him. You're elevated, you know, if, you know, to him. He checks in on you in a special way, right? God is omnipotent. So he, uh, and, uh, you know, omniscient, he knows all, and, and, and he, he understands, you know, everybody and what everyone's thoughts are, those who follow him or not, but there's some sort of distinction that God makes. Your, your salvation is secure. Peter would say that in chapter 1, that it's, it's protected, um, that his people he guards, and he has something that he um, looks after in a particular and careful manner, especially for the church, right? You know, it's Christ's bride, and so he is going to protect that in a, in a special and unique way. And so just that reminder, right, that you are, you, you are special. Um, it has language of the new covenant, where uh, in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, where God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right there's that again that renewal and that reminder that there's this relationship like you are mine right you are mine but being mine I look out for you I care for you I'll take care of you and in Malachi chapter three in regards to judgment he says that his treasured possession will be spared as a man spares his son and so there's a couple different ways that one. There are blessings, but there's also, when judgment comes, that there is a protection. And that you will be spared. Why? Because you are my treasured possession. If there was a fire, you know, you would go after your treasured possession. And sometimes we'll see what, what possessions are truly treasured when those things happen. And so, so in that, that, those, that, those four things, we see kind of this glorious calling that God has, has called for each believer. And these distinctions that are... Um, set for each person who places their faith in Christ, who Christ is their cornerstone and their foundation. And so he says these things, that you are these things for a specific person, that you may, so back, back in uh, verse 9 of Peter, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. So proclaim the excellencies of God. If I just said, all right, I want you to name some excellencies of God. Sometimes it would be talk, you know, considered the attributes of God. What are things that describe God? What's that? Holy. Okay, God is holy. Sovereign. What's that? Sovereign. Sovereign. Okay, holy, sovereign. Good. Loving. Loving. Merciful. Merciful. Powerful. Powerful. Just. Just. What was that? The good shepherd, okay. Forgiving. Forgiving. Wrathful. Wrathful. Perfect. Perfect. All knowing. All powerful. All right, God is love. God is merciful. God is, you know, and you start like naming out the, the attributes of God. You know, sometimes you can, you can spend weeks going through them. Uh, and reading about them and, and talking about all the things that like make God, God. There's some things that are unique about God, right? God is eternal, right? God is all-powerful, things that like we could never be. But there are things about God that we share, you know, some of his attributes with, that God is loving and we can love because God loved, right? That's how we know what love is. You know, we can show mercy on others, we can forgive others. And so there are things that when we just start talking about God and thinking about why, you know, one, that why God is excellent and all the attributes that characterize who God is, then we should be able to proclaim those things. It should just move us to proclaim those things. Yes, Eric? What's that? What's that, Eric? Hedging on that idea? Um, are, they, are they necessarily divorced? When we talk about who the excellencies of God is, um, I mean, if he says, you are set apart, and you are these things, and this is what God has, this is how God has made you, what's that? True, true, true. Um, yeah, so what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, uh, is that, <laughs> so if we talk about who, if somebody says, who is this God that you worship, and you talk about this God, I don't think it would, you would leave it there to be like, huh, okay, that sounds like a pretty good God. Exactly, exactly. True. Right. Right. We'll continue. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, yeah I, don't, I don't think we need to divorce those things from, from each other. And so we say, I mean, when he says, like, we proclaim the excellencies of God, right, that contains not only who God is, but what God has done as well. Right? Because he says that. Um, he says specifically that, 
he has called you out of darkness. And again, I think, again, is that, that relationship aspect of who God is and who you are, but that God has chosen you. And so, what's that? Right. But right now, again, you know, P- Peter is, is still like the, the, still again, like if I use that analogy, like kind of the coach, like kind of reminding them of who they are. Um, because the main thing is that he's, yeah, then, then this is who you are and this is who God has called you to be, right, for a, a set purpose. And we're going we're gonna to get to that. And you're going to encounter trials and you're going to encounter difficulties. And this is how I want you to act, right, knowing your calling and knowing who you, who you are. And it will set that, that case out for, you know, kind of the rest of, of 1 Peter, right? And Peter says that he called us out of darkness, um, if something is in darkness, you know, there's, there's two aspects to that. One is if something is in darkness, they are, they're unseen, right? Um, if you are in darkness, right, you can't see clearly. And so two things that God, like, pulled you out of darkness, right, that he pulled you in, in this kind of the, the mass of, of sinners, um, pulled you out of darkness, so not only, like, Pull, you know, set you aside, and it says brought you into the light so people can see you, but also you know that you've been brought out of darkness, and now that you are into the light, you can see things more clearly. So there's, there's kind of two aspects to that. And if we stop and just, just thought about that for a second, I mean, the longer that we have been um, following the Lord, sometimes we forget about our past. Sometimes we forget about, you know, what it was like to be in darkness. And so it's, it's a good reminder that every once in a while we should stop and think, like, before, you know, before we came to Christ, like, what was our, our life like? What, what, you know, what were our um, desires? What was our aims? You know, what was the, you know, who were we living for? I mean, we would know that we were living for ourselves or living for uh, some other, you know, God, made in our image, and that it's good to stop and think about what it looked like, right? And notice and think about it, and then God, like, stopped and took us and called us, right? Knowing who we were, right? Knowing that we didn't live our lives for Him, but mostly for ourselves, and God said, you know, I, I'm just going to put the brakes on how you're thinking, and I want to pull you out and draw you into the light. And not only that, just, like, bring you out into the light, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you... This chosen race, right? I chose you. You are now a holy, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are my treasured possession. And so we just could stop and think about that, that God made us like that. And it should then move us to praise, right? Again, that foundation reminding us who God was and what He did. It should move us to also praise Him and to proclaim who he is and what he has done by sending his son Jesus Christ for us. And so we move from there to uh, the next verse, verse 10. It's kind of this great act of grace. Continue up, like pulling you out of darkness. He continues that language and he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, 
You know, sometimes it's good just to, to think about the wonder of God and just have, have that lift, it, lift us up. And again, that reminder of where we've come from. I think sometimes, you know, we look at like, you know, gospel messages and, and how God is proclaimed. Um, there's a both and, right? Should we proclaim man's sin? Yes. Should we proclaim the excellencies of God? Yes. Um, sometimes it can become out of balance, but I think that we need to always have that tension because if it's too much on the excellencies of God, we can come, become puffed up. And if it's too much on the, uh, you know, the man's sinfulness, we can either become puffed up that we're no longer like that, like the Pharisee, or we can, you know, be focused on what we've done, maybe start becoming work-centered on how we've, you know, come to God. And so we have to have that tension, right? Who God is and what God has done to pull us out. And he says, he, he uses language, um, straight from Hosea, uh, Hosea 1, 6 through 9, basically, if you want to read those verses, uh, Hosea uh, was called to uh, have, um, to, to marry a woman uh, who would not be faithful. And this was supposed to be a picture of Israel. This was, uh, Hosea was going to Israel. Israel and Judah were separate. And he went to Israel, and Israel, um, uh, this is before they were uh, taken captive by the Assyrians, and that was his you know, message. I'm coming to the the Israelites, the the northern nation. And uh, God uses his life as kind of a picture of that. So he has three children. And the first children, um, first child represents uh, kind of a cutting off with uh, Jezreel, um, which is in the the history of Israel. And and so that's something else. But then he picks up the last two children um, uh, and their names. The first one he says, I want you to name your child No Mercy, and uh, because I will not have mercy on Israel. like I'm going to bring them into captivity. And then I want you to name your child, your, sec- your third child, Not My People. That was the name that, that he gave this child. Not My People because the Israelites will no longer be my people, they're going to be, because they've broken my covenant, then I'm going to break that with them, and they're going to be taken into captivity. And so it's kind of interesting that the two names that Hosea was given, no mercy and not my people, are what Peter says, right? At one time, you were not God's people. And at one time, God showed you no mercy. But now you are God's people, and now you have received mercy. Um, The Israelites were always God's chosen people, but now Peter is saying, you are, you are that this message of salvation has now come to you. Uh, We get that idea, remember when uh, the Gentile woman came to to Jesus in Matthew 15? So I'm going to read this passage. This is 15.22. says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Just send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? Gentiles, like, Jesus is like, I'm not supposed to have mercy on you. Right? You're not who I came to be sent with, to sent for. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's 
table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Right? She realized as a Gentile that she didn't, she didn't deserve mercy, that God's mercy was for his people. But when we see in, in Acts, right, with uh, God now going and spreading his witness to, to other groups, right, it was to those in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, that now the Gentiles are included in that, and now the Gentiles receive mercy as well. So the Gentiles were not God's chosen, but now they are. Just like all who rejected God at one point would receive punishment, now those who come to God will receive His mercy. That's the major focus of Acts as you read through how God is now spreading, right, to a a little select people in Jerusalem and saying, like, now it's to everybody. Now it's to everybody. And so because of these things, because of of who you are, because of, you know, what God has done, right, he now leaves him with one last thing. I mean, he's not just for today. Because he's got several other chapters. One, one next thing, I guess we'll say. He, he kind of now turns and says, now, because of these things, right, because of who you are, this is what I want you to do. He says, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This word urge, right, is strong language. Like, I, I plead, you know, I implore you, please do this. And he says, as sojourners and exiles, right, what again does that term indicate? It indicates that they are not at home. You know, they are a holy nation. We said that their nation uh, broadly, right? Their home is their ambassadors um, of another place, right? They're dispersed that out throughout the world. And as they are on this journey, as they are sojourners and exiles, we got to remind ourselves at that as well that we are, you know, sojourners and exiles here in America. All right? I want you to abstain. From the passions of the flesh. Um, we won't go into it uh, just for sake of time, but Galatians 5 kind of paints this picture where um, in Paul is speaking to the Galatians and says you know, similar, similar language. I mean, he, he wrote to the Galatians because an issue was okay, now these Gentiles are saved. This group that was, had a Jewish background said, okay, well, now they need to be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, they don't. Right? God has not, you know, has not demanded anything to be placed on you. And he starts talking about faith and works and that it is not by anything you do that will, that, uh, grants you salvation, but it is only faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says there are kind of two places, you know, we live in the midst of two kind of this, two, two, uh, ends of a rope. And because of God's calling, right, He has called us to walk in the Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit has been placed within us, we are to walk in the image of Christ. But we are tied because we are still here in this world to these fleshly desires. And He, he starts talking about these deeds of the flesh. And he, and he doesn't just say, stop doing these deeds of the flesh. But what He does say is, like, instead of, instead of like pulling tightly on this rope, I want you to pull tightly on this rope. And this rope is, I want you to walk in the Spirit. I want you to follow Christ. I want you to do the things that Christ has asked you to do. And the more that you do it, you will start showing that fruit and those desires, and the desires of the flesh will just fade away. So put your eyes on Christ and do those things. He says you're free, 
You're free to do anything, but don't use, do anything to indulge in the things that would dishonor God. So he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And so, uh, P- you know, Peter says that, again, Paul kind of outlines that a little bit more about how you can, ha- cannot by walking in the Spirit. Because why? He says they, they wage war against your soul. Uh, so what are some reasons why we, aren't, we should not sin? Like, have we ever stopped and thought, like, why shouldn't we sin? What's that? Okay, so one, because of our love for God. What's that? Okay, because He loved us. Uh, so how, how, would we, how would we say that? God loved us, so we shouldn't sin because... What's that? Okay, one, so it grieves Him. Because uh, we want to obey Him. We want to honor Him. Okay, so, so reasons why not to sin. What are other reasons why we shouldn't sin? What's that? Okay, we obey him because we are adopted by him. Okay. Okay, so it's, so right here, it's destructive to our soul, right? So there are many reasons not to sin, and so you know, you know, mainly it should be because what God has done for us, right? And that's really like a big emphasis on on what God has done for us. We shouldn't just out of obligation, just out of. Um, uh, knowing what God has done for us, we shouldn't do that. And it, but Peter also paints the picture that <laughs> if that isn't enough for you, it's bad for you, right? It, it, not only there are consequences for your sin in your own life, but there are consequences that um, have a fallout through relationships with others, right? So it does, not only like, breaks your relationship with him, causes pain and sorrow in your own life, and he puts it this way, that it wages war against your soul. And so because of these things, he says, I want you to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That term, conduct, honorable, can be also like your behavior to be excellent, right? Um, that, that word is uh, excellent. The MacArthur Study Bible says that it's lovely or winsome, gracious, noble, um, honorable, all of these things, that, that's how you should act. And he says amongst the Gentiles. Why does he say Gentiles? Well, Peter's a Jew, and he's writing to a group of people that are a mix of Jews and Gentiles that are spread in a, in a predominantly Gentile nation. And with the Gentiles, like Jews were, uh, because of their, their faith and background, they set themselves apart. That's what God desired. So they had dietary restrictions, they had kind of cultural distinctions. The Gentiles, though, were uh, believed in multiple gods, and so they were used to assimilating people in to their religious beliefs. And so Paul, Peter says, I want you to understand that, that even though you're amongst people that assimilate you know, your religion into theirs and it's no big deal, that you are to keep yourself set apart. And so amongst these Gentiles, you want to have your conduct be honorable. And why is that? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, he says, when they do, indicating that they will, um, not that they actually were evildoers, but because of what they believed and who they are, there will be things that are, are said about them. You know, we said that some scholars uh, believe that this is um, maybe as a result of Nero's persecution, that they might be identifying like, oh, you're a Christian, so you, 
you know, believe this, right? We see it in our own day where uh, Christians are you know, starting to become marginalized, um, either as simple-minded or as ignorant or as bigoted because of your beliefs, right? So because they're just going to say you're an evildoer because of what you believe, meaning it doesn't align with what they believe, when they do call you an evildoer, your conduct is honorable, meaning excellent, um, so they can't put anything against you, right? Uh, they can't uh, malign you, and we'll see that a little bit later uh, in First Peter. But Peter finishes it off, he says, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? It's when God comes and, you know, it's the Old Testament term, when God comes and visits his people to bless them, to take them, you know, to move or to act in a particular way. Um, and so we've seen that several times in history. For them, a person's day of visitation is when the gospel is revealed to them and they open, their eyes are open to it. And so when they finally realize who God is, that they can say like, oh yeah, you know, I, I thought poorly about you, but you always kept your conduct honorable. Even though I thought this about you, now I know the truth and I understand you actually loved me by the way that you did not, you know, react how I normally would have reacted, right? As a, as a Gentile, as a sinner, um, and to do evil back. And so um, he says, so they may, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, more could be said, but um, we'll, we'll pause there because uh, we've run out of time, and we'll pick this up, and we'll see how this relates to then those that are put in authority over us, how do we relate to them? And that's what we'll finish up that next week. So let me pray, and I'll let you guys go.